Welcome to episode 23 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Dwayne France. And I'm Doc Shauna Springer. And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. Check out all the shows. You can find them at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS. I want to thank everybody again for joining us to listen to an honest conversation about service member, veteran, and military family suicide. Part of addressing suicide is ensuring that we understand it, what it is, and what we can do about it. Our guest today represents an organization that does exactly that. Shauna, what can you tell us about our guest? Yes, Dr. Tina Atherall is the CEO of PsychArmor. She's also the granddaughter of a World War II Army veteran, daughter of a Navy veteran, and a warrior wife married to a 20-year career Marine. The impact of suicide within the military community is personal for Tina. As she explains, when a loved one is disconnecting, isolating in crisis, or even after a loss, it's a lonely, powerless place for those bearing witness. The toll on the family is great, and suicide impacts family members too. Despite the many highs of military life, the lows were challenging and tragic. Yet the pure honor and privilege of families to share in their darkest moments, their ability to be vulnerable and recognize their loved ones need assistance, or in their darkest grief, the openness to be part of their lives is overwhelming. I'm always reminded that this work is connected to a higher purpose. Personally, I'm very pleased to host Dr. Tina Atherall on today's podcast. Yes, I, I think uh, PsychArmor is a partner for a lot of organizations doing this work, and I think they're doing some great stuff. We'll get into the conversation and we'll come back afterwards to pull out some of the key points. If we're looking at suicide prevention from a public health approach and the CDC and the VA's national strategy to prevent veteran suicide, they both indicate that education and awareness is a key aspect for a protective measure to prevent suicide. And that's what PsychArmor does. Why do you think education awareness is important when it comes to suicide prevention? Yeah, so thanks, Dwayne. I think that in terms of suicide prevention, actually education related to anything, is so important. It's a place where we start conversations. So when we think about something as connective and as important as establishing a deeper connection than just a hello, how are you? suicide and suicide prevention, and in particular, the gatekeeper training, it is so important to have the education behind words, just the ways in which we interact with individuals. We think that that's something that should be simple. Sometimes I am amazed around that, but a reminder to ask people a question more than just, hi, how are you? Go a little bit further. Um, and that type of, of education was really important when we look at the military and veteran community, and I always include my families and caregivers in that, it just introduces another layer because our community is unique. And sometimes we are isolated from a larger civilian community. And so even having that lens of the really unique attributes of being a part of a military connected community is a critical education piece. Any type of care intervention, education, but also in pertaining to suicide prevention. This is something that I think we're having a lot of conversations around is the, the awareness is there, right? Regardless of the accuracy of the numbers, even I think the civilian community is becoming aware that there is a problem, but education and awareness 
what you're talking about is not educating that there is a problem, but then going further and deeper. One, it's not just with veterans. It's also, as you said, caregivers are, are impacted, families are impacted, spouses, siblings, parents, but also going deeper in the sense of not just that it's happening, but why it's happening. Yeah. Well, I think, I think the why is perhaps even a, a beautiful underlying to COVID-19. People, I think, are starting to understand because it's now personally affecting everyone on a global level on what it feels like to be disconnected from those around you. So I, I often wonder if our, our why used to seem scarier because maybe people hadn't felt like they had experienced it. But now we have a word that I felt like I, I was very comfortable talking about the importance of being socially disconnected, not the social isolation because it's the physical isolation we're experiencing now, but that disconnection and then the lack of deep connections, which is loneliness. And when you really dig into a lot of the models of suicide prevention, as well as that intervention, clinicians that have worked a lot in this community talk about creating bonds, the why behind, and even more so, I, I love the work of Kim Morocco where she does so much in postvention, and it's really looking at what happens afterwards that gives us all the whys that we saw before, right? And then we start to, to, to go backwards and say, well, how could we have intervened? Again, putting a different lens to our military-connected community. And so the why of suicide prevention and education is really to be looking at where are some of those, those really significant trigger points that we might need to be looking at to be ahead of it. And so we're hearing some conversations, a lot of conversations around what might financial stress do to an individual? What might that be leading into uh, for veterans? What does that look like for caregivers when they don't have respite? And so Dr. Keita Franklin always says, I want to talk about suicide prevention without talking about suicide. And so in that public health approach, you're looking at all of those things without really talking about suicide. And I think that that's probably one of the most important parts about education is learning that you don't have to always be saying, suicide prevention, suicide prevention, suicide prevention, understanding the, the why, and then being able to talk about it and create a connection around that. And for us, that is education. I think that's an important point in that people think about suicide prevention as something that's immediate, that is, and, and, and I talked about this with Dr. Karen Orbis in our episode, of the fact that everybody thinks that I'm getting suicide prevention training in order to prevent suicide within the next 24 to 48 hours, right? And, and while we need to do that, that's too late. What you're talking about is prevention to keep somebody from getting to that point. And, and that's yeah. not as clear cut, right? As you said, there's a number of different factors, whether it's economic stability, whether it's connectedness that you talked about, whether it's the awareness of some of the facts, medical provider education, a medical provider talking about suicide, risk, all of these things, that's not as clear cut as to say, if this person's exhibiting these three symptoms, then they're about to take their own life. Yeah, exactly. Actually, I loved your article where you talked about it's more than just having the twice a year training. And so one of the things that we're looking at at PsychArmor is, it's like an overused term, everyone laughs, like, oh God, they're talking about the Kirkpatrick model of learning. But it's, it's an evaluation model that is really in-depth and around the learning process. And it looks at drivers. So it says the education is enough. But if you don't have some sort of 
action tied to that learning, then it's just a, just a, just a two-year training. And I think that when it comes to, in particular, looking at some of the tremendous experts that have shared their knowledge, their skills, their narrative, and their time with Psych Armor, because that's really how we're built. I was looking at your tremendous list of individuals that have shared time with you on your podcast, and they're the ones who have come on board to Psych Armor and said, this is important. Our work's important together. Psych Armor has the opportunity to get this out to mass learners. I want to share what I've, what I've built. And so in that, that piece of the suicide prevention or the intervention, and again, I think some of the, the work within the, the post-vention community is just tremendous, and I hope we get to that side to talk more about that in the future, is really about having that access to education close so that we know that, that okay, this, this is to address this, but in their work, what are they really saying, right? They're really talking about a model of creating a whole health system. They'll talk about what are the signs and symptoms and, and what caused that. And so where, where are some of these things that you can put in an intervention? And that's a lot of what I think you've done with your podcast as well, is that you're talking about the significant things out there, but you're also talking about the people that are doing things that are creating an early intervention by doing yoga, doing different things that create some of the response to mitigate our signs and symptoms of, of suicide or somebody struggling. And I wonder if that's a role of, definitely that Psych Armor is filling, but the role of education and awareness in general is to say that there needs to be preparation, right? We need to prepare. I'm thinking of an analogy of if I only address the problem with my vehicle when it breaks down, right? That's an intervention, whereas I know that doing preventive maintenance on my vehicle and doing things ahead of time, but I wouldn't know that that's necessary unless I learned that from someone, my father or, you know, what have you, right? But education and and what Psych Armor does is lets people know that there is a way to keep the engine from breaking down in the first place. And this is the education around how to raise that awareness and prevent it rather than intervene. Yes, I think it's a, that confidence builder. So we, we asked our learners a, a few particular questions afterwards, not as in-depth as I was saying before, like looking at this Kirkpatrick model and what, what drivers are necessary to, to keep that learning in place. But we asked some simple questions for all of our learners, no matter what the content is, about what did they just learn? Did they learn something? Okay, it seems easy, like, oh, well, we hope they did. Did they learn something? And then when they after that, did they feel as though they could take what they learned and apply it? And then in some areas we asked, did that help you have a conversation with an individual based on what you learned? So, so on top of that awareness, it also creates a, a certain level of confidence, uh, confidence to say, okay, wait, yeah, 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 I've got this. So I, I was, after going through the Columbia scale, and I'm throwing all this stuff out there because I think it's important that there's so much, right? Like that's also probably one of my critiques that there's so much out there in, in education. Like where do we recommend that somebody starts? So for us at, at Psych Armor and, and when we're with teams like our SAMHSA technical teams and everybody else is doing this great work, we're able to say, okay, we've got it on our platform. Here it is. You can, you can access it and, and, and start from there. But in particular, like the Columbia scale, now that there's an app, we can educate people. There's great uh, trainings out there. There's community conversations around it. Are we, are we then 
um, creating an opportunity, and I, I guess we are, to be able to say, it's not hard. You don't have to be a trained clinician. We're actually preferring that it's, it's not in this beginning stage because we know that you're going to be the first one who's going to be involved with a loved one, family member, maybe even someone who's coming into the hair salon and creating a confidence that they can have the conversation. The other thing like around just thinking about interaction, what we do is we make sure we have what we call a clinical support line. It's like an education coaching line because we want individuals, if they've taken a course and let's focusing just on our suicide prevention, the gatekeeper training, if there's something that they're not comfortable with or they're in a situation, maybe they have a friend that's struggling, we're not there to intervene from the crisis point. We're there to assist the learner on helping them through asking that question or what might be the next, next step. And it might be, please call, call the suicide prevention line or refer them, and this is how you can help them do it. So it's creating a level of confidence as well that what they just learned, they can apply it. And that goes back to you can't just sit in the classroom either. So it's that experiential opportunity to practice what you've learned. You mentioned it before about those of us who are in the military connected community having some common understanding. A core principle of education is shared background knowledge, right? That there is this general, we know things, and then we're able to build things on top of those things we know, right? We don't drop calculus in, in fifth graders' laps, right? We build on a shared background knowledge of mathematics, and then we build up to higher and higher concepts. I wonder if that's not something that maybe that isn't working in the suicide prevention community is that we've not established a shared background knowledge of suicide prevention and we're trying to throw advanced concepts like a public health model and, and protective factors and risk factors and all of these other things. Yeah. So there's a couple little indications of maybe where we're starting to to catch on to that, I'm working now. I'm in California. I was originally licensed as a social worker in New York State. And so I got to switch everything over here, right? And as, as I was looking at the licensing requirements, uh, the state of California is going to be requiring for mental health professionals to take a core competency in suicide intervention and prevention courses, just like the, our mandated child abuse training. So isn't that kind of a little bit eye opening that in 2021, this is now just becoming a core? competency for mental health providers. And a few of the topics backwards, I was thinking to myself, when we're sitting around a table and we're strategizing around either content or a lot around this community model where you and I are doing some work, right, within the, the, the SAMHSA Mayors and Governors Challenge, we're thinking about the different, inter, the different the problems. And so it always comes back to us as our own community, mental health providers. Wait a second, did I learn that in school? That wasn't a mandated CEU. And we're, as our, as our own selves sitting at the table, like, whoa, wait a second here. We have a problem. So we know that it's still really important that the individual community member, because I, I will always go right to person-to-person connection. But then when we go over here and we think, okay, so now, now I've raised my hand. I'm going to walk in that door. I'm struggling. Now I'm in front of a provider that doesn't know how to talk about mean safety. And I know that that's a huge push right now. We have a lot of conversations around that Some great people in VA and outside of VA. It's like our own healthcare providers. It's not even a part of the assessment. And so that should raise a lot of red flags for us (laughs) that that part of education is not there. So to your point, like then all of a sudden we're like, oh, wait a second. We need to know all of this, but we didn't even build it from a core competency level. 
Now, I'd like to think that our skills as mental health professionals from just establishing empathy. As a social worker, like if that's not what I'm walking in the room with, holy goodness, someone's in trouble. But when we layer it on some of these other, just the comfort level to ask around safety and firearms, for example, a lot of people shy away from it. So what, what are we doing? What are we, what are we doing as, as, as clinicians? I think education is a really, really big part of that. But it'd be fun to think about what type of more engaged learning and opportunity do we need to have? I mean, more scenarios where people have an opportunity maybe even to intersect with the client without them being in crisis and some scenarios around that. Because I don't know anyone who's doing that kind of work, right? We're always doing it amongst each other instead of with the people that, that we're trying to establish a connection with. More scenarios like that would probably be really interesting. And, and, and that's a great point. I was actually having this conversation last week with a local colleague as we were um, preparing to do something similar with suicide prevention for other clinicians. She mentioned exactly the same thing. And, and possibly, and this is going into peer support, more of the gatekeeper training, but possibly having individuals with lived experience that we know that someone who, who attempts and then survives does likely go on to recover if they're in treatment just the individuals who say, I can role play what my situation was, but I can do it safely. So I don't wonder if that's a way to do it. And something that you've mentioned a couple of times is gatekeeper training. And so talking about the idea of mental health providers not being prepared, I'd like to talk a little bit more about gatekeepers, what you mean by gatekeepers and how they're even less prepared than maybe licensed clinicians. Yeah, well, interestingly, because I still don't want to jump away from the healthcare providers, our gatekeeper training course, that's kind of the staple that's out there for communities to use right away, because it was one of the first ones in our portfolio, but also because of who our partner was with the VA. They developed it. There's a toolkit around it. It's a mandatory training within the VA healthcare system. So they're using gatekeeper internally at VA as as gatekeepers. So I think mental health and healthcare and even down to once I used to work in a hospital system and it was patient focused care, the janitor, they have a very important role, right? Within, with, and they need to be trained. So that aside, I think, I think a gatekeeper is everyone. I can't wait to read Shauna Springer's book uh, because she talks a lot about who are the healers, at least what I've seen in the expert. And as soon as in her excerpts, I'm sorry, I felt so validated when I read that part of her summary, because even as somebody that I think sometimes professions bind us and individuals without the worry of what is my ethical standard? What am I allowed to do? Can I intervene like this? They have so much more of an opportunity because they're not so worried about that. And so when I read her, her thing around healers, I was like, that's it. Because I know in those situations where I've had people near and dear to me and just the privilege, I'm a military connected, spent, you know, my 20 plus years alongside a Marine. It's my family. And yes, I might be a social worker. I might be working in a nonprofit space. But those things that come to me at 12 o'clock at night in a Facebook IM is something I can't ignore. And I think sometimes when, if I wrap Tina social worker around me, people would say, oh, no, 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 you got, you can't, what? If that's my family. So there's, and, and just people who call, and I know this one, the text message, hey, I got a buddy, right? Mm-hmm. Hey, I've got this. So gatekeepers, it is everybody. 
So I think that when we talk about suicide gatekeeper training, and again, when we look at the SAVE course, even just what it stands for, you're, you're asking the signs, you ask the right questions, and then the V is the most important, validating. So when we're training, if you think about training somebody who's in a, oh, I know, we saw that, heard the statistic at SAMHSA, I thought this was so amazing, we were talking about one of the counties that had reduced suicides. And it was because they did suicide gatekeeper training in two very important places. I mean, I sat there like brilliant. And I know the mental health um, first aid, that's a focus for mental health first aid, right? Like they're going right to the community member. But when they talked about doing gatekeeper training and really suicide prevention, simple suicide gatekeeper training in those two areas, because, you know, animal shelter dropping off an animal before, and then going to a hotel, I was like, brilliant there's your gatekeepers and imagine how empowered someone might feel in that moment of seeing somebody and knowing that oh goodness this is it and then feeling confident enough to say i'm here you look like you're struggling how can i help you can we go sit down like those simple things and i'm not sure if you know there's such an uncomfortable line i talk to talk to my family about this all the time yeah i have teens i have kids in college and i want them to feel empowered to to not shy away from a hard conversation and so i think that that is the beauty around gatekeeper training i would just also like to say again it's not enough to say that we've provided the gatekeeper training it's not enough for me to just give that to my children and expect that now they're going to be able to help a friend if they're struggling because they're a gatekeeper it's having the conversations over and over again and playing scenarios or even in that moment being able to help them help who they're trying to help. And I think we make things complicated by making it a system. Okay, well, who would you call and how do you do this? No, gatekeeper training is having it at your fingertips. So, and I, and I know a lot of the other models like Columbia Scale and QPR, we get apps now, which is fun. Meeting technology, got it at our fingertips. And, and I think that is very important as we do tend to make it complicated, but something you said is we avoid uncomfortable conversations but if we avoid uncomfortable conversations about suicide, we're going to experience an uncomfortable conversation yeah. when something happens and, and we might have, and, and not to say it's on the responsibility of the individual, and that's something that really kind of, everybody thinks, what else could I have done? But if we avoid the uncomfortable conversations, we're going to experience something uncomfortable if someone attempts or dies by suicide. So I really appreciate you taking the time today to join the show. I will definitely make sure that links, not just to Psych Armor itself, but also to SAVE training. Some of our guests, including our co-hosts, have all presented classes on Psych Armor. So I'm going to make sure that we have links to all of those. And uh, I really thank you for coming on today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for your time. Doc Springer. My new book, Warrior, is out. I don't always get a book endorsement, but when I do, it's from the world's most interesting man. Hello, my friends. These are difficult times that we are all going through. So many people offer opinions on this COVID-19 situation, what to do, how to cope. So you don't know whose perspective to listen to. I would like to suggest to you a doctor, Dr. Shona Springer, she has worked for years with our warriors. She is extremely insightful and can give you all kinds of good information. I would like to recommend her book. It is called Warrior. It is important 
There is information that can do good things for you. So I recommend it. Doc Springer, thank you. The book is called Warrior. Adios, amigos. Good health. Stay well. Stay isolated, but not alone. Adios. PsychArmor is a partner to many of the guests that we have on the show and is an example of an organization that's doing their part in a way that they can in order to address what's going on. Yes, on the podcast, we've been tracing the theme of the public health approach to suicide prevention. And a public health approach means that we all have a role. Along these lines, Tina feels that families are often overlooked as a key part of prevention. And if empowered, connected, and resourced, they can be a key factor to preventing suicide. She mentioned that she resonated with an excerpt of my book, Warrior, around the definition of a healer. This is the excerpt she was referring to. Who is a healer, really? A doctor with many years of formal education and training may or may not be a healer. In some cases, the way a doctor practices is the reason why a veteran drops out of treatment, never to return. But a doc, someone who builds the kind of deep trust veterans had in the service with their medics, that person is a healer. A wife or a parent who recognizes and helps carry the grief of their military loved one, these are healers. A husband who listens with love and empathy to his warrior wife, he becomes essential in bringing her all the way home. Fellow students in classrooms who respectfully integrate veterans into their college communities, they become healers. Even actors who turn down roles that perpetuate one-dimensional myths of veterans as either heroes or broken gear who instead pursue roles that portray veterans as multifaceted human beings, like all of us, they become healers. What is a healer? It's all of us or none of us, depending on what we understand and how this moves us to act in support of those who protect us. There is that idea of suicide prevention as something that someone else does, right? We leave it to the experts. It might be, I don't know what to do, and so it's better to say nothing kind of thing. And I think it is important to say we all do have a role to play within our families. We heal each other. We support each other. And so this idea of healer being a medical professional versus someone whose actions are healing. Yep. And for me personally, as I've sort of transformed my role from being Dr. Springer to kind of being Doc Springer, to me, that has meant sometimes grappling with how do I navigate boundary crossings, which are different from boundary violations. And as Tina had once explained to me, suicide prevention is about being authentically available and connected to others. She's a member of the tribe of military family members. And so for her, suicide prevention has meant extending herself regardless of professional titles, commands, and set protocols. Like when you get that, I am at midnight. I deeply resonate with her perspective on what suicide prevention is for those who are in the field and who have perhaps another role of trust with those in the tribe. I've personally been influenced by the work of a licensed psychologist and ethics expert, Dr. Ofer Zur. In an article he wrote, Dr. Zur said this, psychologists have been inundated with unequivocal messages about the depravity of boundary crossings and dual relationships in clinical practice. From graduate courses and texts on ethics to continuing education workshops on risk management to attorney's advice columns, We have been warned never to leave the office with the client, to be very careful about gifts, never to socialize with clients, to avoid bartering and to limit physical contact to a handshake or a pat on the back. It's important that psychologists differentiate between harmful boundary violations and helpful boundary crossings. 
A boundary violation occurs when a therapist crosses the line of decency and integrity and misuses his or her power to exploit a client for the therapist's own benefit. Boundary violations usually involve exploitative business or sexual relationships. Boundary violations are always unethical and are likely to be illegal. However, boundary crossing, when executed with the client's welfare in mind, is likely to enhance therapeutic alliance, which is the best predictor of therapeutic outcome. To me, this has been a refreshing invitation to be a compassionate human first as part of my role as a healer, to be someone who holds good boundaries, but who does not use boundaries as an excuse for failing to exercise the full range of my humanity. I think that's a good point too, especially as what PsychArmor does in presenting the expertise of those of us in the community, right? We're putting ourselves out there. You and I are putting ourselves out there. I have in the past tried to keep the left hand from knowing what the right hand is doing. More to the fact if I'm in therapy with a client, my focus is on them and, and not whether or not they've read one of the books or they listen to a particular show or anything else, right? But, but there are times where they'll come in and say, hey, I picked up your book the other day. So I, I think that you're right. There does have to be some flexibility, especially in this current world of such mass communication. Well, and it is a unique role. I mean, my patients don't know a lot about me personally. They really don't. I never shared much. It really was not about me. I was very clear on that. But I have a small bowl that somebody had given me who was serving as a translator who spoke Farsi. And that is an example of being vulnerable to share that I accepted a gift from a patient. Maybe it wasn't worth a lot financially, but to him, if I had rejected that gift, that definitely would have hit him at a place of harm. So to me, that's what I kind of mean by thinking about why am I using this boundary? Is it for me and my comfort or is it for the patient's welfare? And if I'm not exploiting someone and it's in their best interest and it's reasonable, then I always try to do the best thing for the patient. I think it's important to be genuine, especially if we're dealing with something as critical as someone who might be in a suicidal crisis. As you said, and as we've talked about, these crises don't happen between the hours of nine to five. They happen in the middle of the night. You just connected something for me, which is that people in a suicidal crisis, when they're calling you or texting you in the middle of the night, which almost never happens to me, but they are acutely sensitive to rejection, acutely sensitive. So you have to kind of think about the big picture in terms of, do I stand on uh, professional boundaries? I can't respond to you at all. Or do you say, I'm concerned that you're feeling that way. Let's talk tomorrow morning, 830. You're my first person I want to call or something like that. Because otherwise, if you just lead with your boundaries, then the person in that state of mind is likely to feel rejected. And, and here, uh, of course, for listeners, Shauna and I are talking about maybe our particular clients who likely don't have our home phone number, don't have that access to us in the middle of the night. But also, as Tina was referencing in the show, I've had people reach out to me based on the work that we're doing here. My spouse is in crisis or my partner is in crisis or I've been struggling with these things. And so it may not necessarily be a client of ours in the middle of the night, but that late night text may be from someone who is looking for someone who understands. And I think it's really important to be able to have that connection. Definitely Psych Armor is a great organization to be able to share some of this information. Really appreciate everybody taking the time to listen. 
Make sure to check out the show notes at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS23, where you get the links to the things we talked about on this episode, as well as on militarytimes.com. As a reminder, you can ask us questions or let us know what you thought about the show by going to our Facebook group, moderated by the outstanding D. James, by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash group. Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we are not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician. You can find out more about the work that Shauna is doing by checking out her latest book, Beyond the Military, A Leader's Handbook for Warrior Reintegration, and the work that I'm doing with my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror. Both are available on Amazon and we'll have links to those in the show notes. And always remember, you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1, chat online with them at veterancrisisline.net, or texting 838255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution, and make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest shows. Join us next time for another great episode, and until then, remember, you're not alone, ever.